Welcome to the Spiral Inquiry Podcast, where we explore the foundations of science, faith, and philosophy. Today, we begin a personal journey as I recount the story of how my understanding of the world developed and evolved. I started with a mindset committed to absolute empirical truth, but in a painful and joyful process of discovery, I've come to a deeper understanding and appreciation for the mystery and beauty of creation and my place in it. Such understanding requires faith at its center, faith which is integrated with science. This story originally appeared on Spiral Inquiry in seven chapters and will be offered in two podcast segments. The first episode will spiral down. The second episode will, I hope, spiral up. Section 1. Sources of Faith Faith begins in the earliest stages of life. Researchers have found that young children have an innate spiritual sensibility, and the form it assumes depends on the language and culture of the family and the community where the child grows up. I was named after my father. Perhaps that is one reason why he played such an important role in my own spiritual development. My father was a scientist with a PhD in chemistry who worked in the technical labs of GAF and later Sibagaygi on films and dyes. We belonged to a local Presbyterian church. I recall very little conversation on religious matters, although we did gather as a family at home to sing Christmas carols. Dad would bring out his old cornet and mom would play the piano. I do remember stacks of Science Magazine and National Geographic, his keen interest in mathematics and the natural sciences, and his occasional bad pun. We lived just up the hill from Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. One Saturday morning, my father had offered to take me to the Lafayette College football game, just me, none of my four older siblings. This was an incredible thrill. I went outside to play with the kids on our street until the time came for the game, but then I lost track of time. When I remembered, I rushed home in horror, only to find that my father had already gone to the game. I was crushed and shamed. But a short while later, my father came home at halftime. He took me back for the second half of the game. His simple act of kindness made an indelible impression far more important than any religious education. It was an act I have always wanted to live up to. Shortly after I graduated from high school in 1969, my father died of pancreatic cancer eight months after his diagnosis. We siblings had gathered around my mother in the final days of his illness. While hospice did not yet exist, their decision had been that he would die at home. We did our best to support each other and our parents in the final hours. Being in the presence of death, even while surrounded by love, is a deep and difficult experience. Shortly after the body had been taken away, we were all gathered quietly together in the living room. The day was cloudy but calm, and we heard a large single clap of thunder rock the house. Perhaps it was just an errant meteorological event, but we all shared it as a sign of his departure to another realm. Some 25 years later, I saw the movie Forrest Gump. The nostalgic replay of four decades of American culture triggered deep but inarticulate feelings for me. 
When I went into the men's room after the movie, there were a series of angled mirrors above the sink. As I looked up into the mirrors, I saw multiple images of my own face interposed with the faces of my father, my brother, and my two young sons. Tears were streaming down my face, tears of sadness and joy and of something deeper. As I now write this many years in the future, I've come to accept these events as threads in a tapestry of meaning, each thread fixed in the determinate past, yet flowing and interweaving into an open, infinite future. They are not discrete or disconnected, but integrated with each other and with the entirety of my experience. The physical, emotional, and spiritual facets are linked in a single, coherent, but incomprehensible fabric of space, time, value, and purpose. They provide a wellspring for my faith in the beauty, joy, love, and transcendence of life. Section 2, The Downward Spiral In the summer of 1975, lying on my back in the Stanford University quad, looking up at the blue sky through the fronds of a palm tree, I realized that I would not find the meaning of life by pursuing more academic study. I would have to actually live life. This was a turning point in my journey. In the six years leading up to that moment, I had earned a BS in mathematics while studying physics and the humanities and taking graduate courses in philosophy. I also played in a rock band, raced bicycles, and worked in a pizza parlor, activities which offered no vocational track. I set this all aside, including my passion for big questions, and moved back east closer to the family. I secured a job. I got married. I bought a house, and I had kids. I was living life. At the same time, I followed developments in the fields I had left behind. The last quarter of the 20th century brought mesmerizing advances in many areas of math and science. I had last studied physics just after quarks had been theorized. But by the end of the century, the standard model of particle physics, quarks and all, was nearly complete. While the integration of quantum and classical physics continued to elude the best minds, the new theoretical frontiers of string theory and supersymmetry were flourishing, and continued progress in cosmology was bringing us closer to understanding the Big Bang. Physics, popularized by the likes of Stephen Hawking, Brian Greene, and others, offered hope for a unified theory of everything, a TOE. Mathematics, always a key partner with physics, had also advanced on many fronts. Information theory and computer tools vastly increased the speed and scope of analytic inquiry. Key developments in set theory, topology, chaotic systems, fractals, and game theory generated considerable excitement. At the same time, progress in the life sciences, medicine, and genetics had exploded. New and exciting findings were routinely promoted in the popular press. Big questions were being answered. It seemed that things were too good to be true. We're all familiar with Aristotle's hackneyed phrase, quote, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The corollary is that something separated into parts is less than the whole. The puzzle has no picture if the pieces are strewn on the floor. 
A machine will not function if it is disassembled. A life that consists only of separate pieces has no meaning. Fifteen years into my life plan towards the goal of finding the meaning of life, the process derailed. I had the pieces of a life, the job, the wife, the kids, the mortgage, and all the rest. But the pieces were not integrated into a whole. My marriage no longer held the spark of love. Job and life were separated by more than a long commute. I felt alienated and disconnected. I could find no unifying whole from which to draw meaning. Things were in parts. My life was not working. So too, my progressive optimism in the inexorable integrated progress of physics, mathematics, and other fields was faltering. The intuitive concept of Newtonian space and time as a fixed background had already unraveled as Einstein's special and general relativity theories took hold. Physicists continued to tell us that time is just an illusion, contrary to our immediate experience. The intractable puzzles of quantum mechanics, including wave-particle duality, the paradox of Schrodinger's cat, the phenomena of paired particles and the observer problem, had never been resolved but merely ignored under the Copenhagen interpretation. The reality of quantum physics continued to challenge the very comprehensibility of the physical world. Cosmologists grappled with the inscrutable properties of the Big Bang and black holes, infinitely dense and impenetrable discontinuities in the fabric of space and time. And they puzzled over the apparently missing quantities in the universal physical balance, now named dark energy and dark matter. Even Stephen Hawking finally gave up on the TOE, quote, there is no picture or theory independent concept of reality. It seemed that as we pulled the physical universe apart into ever more discrete and fine-grained components, we found the pieces could not be integrated into a whole. Surely mathematics, unsullied by the need for empirical validation, would be different. Math had always held a privileged position in the pantheon of human knowledge, at least since the time of Pythagoras, as it relied on deductive proof rather than inductive generalization. Yet novel findings in chaos and complexity theory confirmed that much of the world and life was, of necessity, uncertain. Very small changes in the initial conditions of dynamic systems led to wildly different outcomes. In truth, very little can be modeled or predicted with any accuracy. In mid-century, Alan Turing had first proved the feasibility of the universal computing machine and founded the computer revolution, but then also proved that the halting problem could not be solved. It is impossible to know if a computer will complete a calculation in a finite amount of time. This was the first of an infinite variety of undecidable problems. At about the same time, Kurt Gödel published his incompleteness theorems, proving that logic itself had holes in it. In any formal logical system, such as arithmetic or set theory, for example, we can demand consistency. A statement and its negation cannot both be true. However, if we demand completeness, 
meaning that we can prove the truth or falsity of any statement, then we have to abandon consistency. We cannot have it both ways. The consistency of mathematics is essential, and the consistency of our reality is a strongly held metaphysical position that can be traced to Aristotle's second principle of logic, the law of non-contradiction. Based on Gödel's proof, then, we have to conclude that there are true mathematical theorems that will never be proved, and true facts about reality we will never know. So, the whole of mathematics is greater than the sum of its provable theorems. The whole of what we seek to know is beyond computation. The whole of our universe is awash with uncertainty. The whole of our reality transcends the laws of nature. Nor can the meaning of our own lives be comprehended in the various pieces scattered across our personal timeline. Section 3, Minding the Gaps. My wife and I once watched the very forgettable 2004 film, Mind the Gap. I remember little about the movie, but the phrase has been bouncing around in my head ever since. It was coined in 1969 for the London Underground System as a message alerting passengers to the gap between the platform and the subway car. It's also a very helpful metaphor for dealing with cognitive, emotional, and spiritual dissonance. If you want to know where the important issues are, look for the seams, the discrepancies, the anomalies and inconsistencies that trouble you. I've learned from therapy sessions dating back to my separation and divorce that my feelings of irritation, frustration, or anger directed at a loved one are usually a sign of deeper usually hidden issues of vulnerability and accumulated pain. I've learned through this experience to try and mind the gaps. Stephen Jay Gould was grappling with such dissonance in his 1997 essay, Non-Overlapping Magisteria, or NOMA, N-O-M-A. At issue were the competing claims of those rejecting religion as superstition or ignorance and those rejecting evolutionary science on the basis of biblical literalism. The inspiration for his essay was Pope John Paul's 1996 proclamation on theories of evolution, where Gould found support for the idea that science and religion address different and non-intersecting categories of inquiry, and therefore could peacefully coexist. Quote, NOMA represents a principled position on moral and intellectual grounds, not a mere diplomatic stance. NOMA also cuts both ways. If religion can no longer dictate the nature of factual conclusions properly under the magisterium of science, then scientists cannot claim higher insight into moral truth from any superior knowledge of the world's empirical constitution. This mutual humility has important practical consequences in a world of such diverse passions. Gould's recommendation could be characterized as a variant on the old trope, quote, good fences make good neighbors. But as he admits in the essay, there are many areas of interest where the boundaries between science and religion are not clear. More significantly, the implications of keeping the various spheres of human inquiry distinct implies that they can never be integrated. 
we are doomed to a life of the mind which is inherently schizophrenic. While many scientists, including the agnostic Gould, may find that satisfactory, it places the burden on believers to park their beliefs and identity at the door to the academy. This hardly leads to an atmosphere of inclusiveness and acceptance within. The Noma model is a variant on the older, quote, God of the gaps argument, which some 19th century theologians decried, saying that using God as the answer to gaps in scientific knowledge mistakenly separates God from nature. Moreover, as science fills those gaps, God will disappear. Dietrich Bonhoeffer expressed it this way, quote, How wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. If in fact the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed further and further back, and that is bound to be the case, then God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. Both Noma and God of the Gaps seek to avoid dissonance by appealing to a form of metaphysical dualism that separates the world of objects and fact from the world of intention and meaning. This denial serves to protect the entrenched positions of two poles of understanding, while effectively prohibiting their integration into the unitary sphere of one's life. There has to be a better way. Section 4, Peeling Back the Layers. I've always been intrigued by the onion metaphor, peel back the layers of the onion to discover the deeper truth. It's a good analogy for reductionism, the process of seeking knowledge by going beyond the appearances to the reality beneath. Beware, however, the end result is not what you expect. Physics explains things by reduction. Objects are composed of molecules, which are composed of atoms, which are composed of neutrons, protons, and electrons. These, in turn, are composed of quarks and other subatomic particles, which behave in accordance with the fundamental laws of physics. In the 20th century, discoveries in relativity and quantum physics revealed incompatibilities between the world of quantum and classical physics. Many believe the inconsistencies will eventually be explained by even deeper theories potentially involving mathematical strings or membranes, abstract symmetries, or pre-geometrical features of underlying reality. In turn, reductionism postulates that the reality we know is built up from the fundamental constituents in a set of causal relations. The fundamental constituents of physical reality, be they strings, brains, or symmetries, drive the manifestations we observe as quantum phenomena. These phenomena cause the configurations of particles and forces, and the resulting behaviors at the classical level to be what they are. This is physics. The properties of these particles and forces, in turn, cause the atomic and molecular interactions that we know of as chemistry. Chemical behaviors ultimately cause self-replicating chemical reactions of increasing sophistication, which leads to biology. Biological evolution causes increasing diversity and complexity. This process eventually caused the development of conscious, sentient beings with the capability of studying the, this entire causal chain. Some physicists and other scientists 
believe that knowing the precise physical states at the quantum level would provide perfect and total knowledge from which the trajectory of all physical reality, including chemistry, biology, and human consciousness, could ultimately be derived from the laws of physics. This is a lofty and perhaps laudable aspiration. However, in this framework, any possible source of knowledge not grounded in fundamental physics, including our immediate human experiences of feelings, intuition, imagination, choices, and love, have been stripped of any causal relevance. They have no knowledge value. We experienced a similar reductionism in philosophy over the past 400 years. René Descartes cast off the Aristotelian appearances to reveal the hidden cogito ergo sum, the interior mind of humans from which all thought originates. David Hume later dissected the Cartesian self into bundles of perception without epistemic significance. Ludwig Wittgenstein reduced even these objects to mere linguistic forms and logical processes and concluded his tractatus. Number seven, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must remain silent. Late 20th century neuroscience followed a different reductionist path by reducing human consciousness to the neural correlates of consciousness. Consciousness has become a mere abstract epiphenomenon to the determinate biological functioning of the brain. Either path reduces knowledge to mechanical or abstract logical processes, effectively draining the meaning from human experience. We are in a place where human experience, philosophy, and consciousness are without value and presumed dead. William Barrett put it this way, quote, We come to understand the phenomenon of life as only an assemblage of the lifeless. We take the mechanistic abstractions of our technical calculation to be ultimately concrete and fundamentally real, while our most intimate experiences are labeled mere appearance and something having reality only within the closet of the isolated mind. Peeling away the layers of an onion does not yield more information about an onion. It just reveals more layers. As the delayering process continues, the onion is destroyed, and its identity and integrity, its onionness, vanishes. There's nothing left. In the process of peeling an onion, either real or metaphorical, one may be brought to tears. In philosophy, we find nihilism, the belief that nothing matters. In science, determinism yields a cold and lifeless world devoid of freedom or joy. In culture, we live materialistic lives, our value exclusively measured in terms of possessions, experiences, money, or status. What is the end if you spend a lifetime peeling back the layers as if life were an onion? Who are you? What do you mean? Nothing. There's nothing left. Vastation is a good word to describe this experience. One is emptied out. Appearances are mere. Substance and meaning are gone. The pieces of my life and my understanding were strewn and shapeless on the ground. Yet that emptiness also begged for something to fill it. This is a good place to stop today. Thanks for listening to the Spiral Inquiry Podcast. I'm your host, George Gantz. 
Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts and please visit spiralinquiry.org to explore the intersection of science, faith, and philosophy and to contribute your own ideas to the conversation. 